Shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. We're so delighted to be with all of you who are in the Zoom and those of you who are on the live stream or if you're on the podcast. And thank you for being with us. This is a very exciting uh, session on the topic of hidden wrongs, uncovering injustices built into our community. Very, very rich, very complex. And we have just the right person for that. Sam Fleischacker is LAS Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of Illinois in Chicago former director of Jewish studies there and founder and co-director of its Jewish Muslim initiative. He works on moral and political philosophy and the philosophy of religion. His books include The Good and the Good Book, published by Oxford in 2015, and Divine Teaching and the Way of the World, published by Oxford in 2011. He has also written short pieces on revelation for the Torah.com, such as his piece, Hearing God's Voice, and his piece, Making Sense of Revelation. Highly recommend those and has been active in Americans for Peace Now and Partners for Progressive Israel. We are so excited to learn about this topic, hidden wrongs, uncovering injustices built into our community. Professor Fleischacker is not only just an enormous scholar, but a great mensch and very active in contemporary uh, moral and political issues. So um, it's a great honor to invite him to, to share some Torah with us today. Thank you very much, Muli. I, I really just wanted to say even before, when we're talking privately, I, I just have so much respect for what you're doing. I think all the various projects are just so great and I'm honored to be part of them. I'm gonna drop a um, handout into the chat, uh, which I presume can also go out to people on the podcast at some point, right? Um, although I'm not gonna begin by, uh, by referring to it, I will in, in, in a moment. I want to begin with a uh, famous fact, famous that is among commentators on the Torah, at least, about this week's Parsha in the Torah. It is the only one, Rashi begins with this comment, that is completely closed, stuma. Now, just let me explain briefly, in case not everybody's familiar with it, what that means. And it has to do with the layout of the, uh, the Parsha in the Torah. So. For those of you who don't regularly read Torah, uh, the general layout is such that you have two kinds of breaks. Breaks at the end of a line, like here, that's called a batucha, it's open. And then you have breaks in the middle of a line, like here, that's called a stuma, closed. Um, a parsha normally begins, uh, every other parsha begins either right after Petucha or right after a stuma. So let me just make sure I have the right examples here. Uh, here you can see a parsha that begins um, right after a stuma. Okay. And here you have a parsha. Uh, I hope you can see it all, that begins right after Petucha, right? And in each case, you open up the Torah uh, to where you're going to read, it's right nice and clear in front of you, right? You see a, a break, and then your Parsha begins. Our Parsha, by contrast, let's see if I can get it. Uh, yes, our Parsha, by, by contrast, begins right here. And I, 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 I have trouble finding it every single time I look at this page. You may have trouble seeing it. it. Begins in the middle of a line. There's no break at all. 
It's the only Parsha in the entire Torah that begins without a break at all, which makes it nerve-wracking, difficult to find. Vayachi Yaakov and Jacob live, Be'eretz Mitzrayim, that comes right after the last words of the last Parsha. So, of course, this provides an opportunity for a bit of commentary. And as I said, Rashi begins his commentary on this Parsha with that fact. Here's what he says. I'll start with the handout this time. Now. You can all see this? Yeah, okay. Um, I, uh, the first line of the Parsha is, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and then it tells the years of his life, that there were 140 and seven years, 147 years. Um, Rashi begins by asking, why is this Parsha closed? Lama Parsha Zostuma. And as we've seen, actually, Parshiot that begin after a little break in the middle of the line, also called Stuma, Rashi is actually using the word stuma in a, in a sort of extended sense. Why is this, as, the, as most translations usually say, why is it entirely close? Why is there no break at all? And he gives two answers. Because when our father Jacob died, the eyes and hearts of Israel were closed because of the suffering of the slavering, slavery that began to be imposed of them. The slavery began, he suggests, after Jacob died. Of course, Torah itself suggests that it took a little bit while, a, a little while after that. It wasn't really right after the death of Jacob, but really after the death of all his children. But he means the slavery was coming in some sense. And for that reason, says um, Rashi, the Parsha is closed. But then he gives a Dabar Acher, a different explanation. He wanted to reveal the end the end times to his children, Levanav, Benistamimeno, and it was closed to him. When does he want to reveal the end times? A couple of chapters after the beginning I already cited. The, um, it, it says, Vaikra Yaakov Elbanav, Vayomer Heasfu, gather yourselves together, Vagida Lachem, and I will tell you, Well, I'll tell you what happens at the end of days which is an expression certainly in rabbinic literature is used to mean the end times. But then he doesn't talk about the end times. He talks about what will happen to each of his sons. He gives them a blessing. Some of the blessings are not such nice blessings, more like a curse than a blessing. But one way or another, he, he talks about his sons. He doesn't talk about the end of days. Or if he does, it's in a very obscure fashion. It would be hard to dig it out of the Parsha. So you could say he tried to talk about the end of days, and this is this is a, midrash, a midrashic story about the parsha. He wanted to, he was inspired to, but it was closed up to him. It's as if suddenly he had a vision of the end of days, and then it's closed up to him. So those are two possible explanations. Um, the second one a little bit fanciful. The first one, both of them, involve some kind of a stretch. There are deeper problems with both of them as explanations of the closedness, and Aviva Zornberg brings this out nicely. So I'll turn to the second thing on the handout. She says, and I will read the whole thing, it's all uh, very nicely laid out. The problem with the first of Rashi's answers to the blocked Parsha question, the Stuma question, is that at the beginning of the Parsha, Jacob is alive. The whole Parsha is in fact named for his liveness, Vayachi, and he lived, right? then he, he, he's going to die in it, but the first verse talks about his, about his living. 
And for most of the Parsha, he remains alive, conscious of approaching death, trying to assure life to his children. He gives a blessing of life. What relevance then does the sealed Parsha break have to his situation? Its symbolism would possibly be more evocative if the blocking happened in the next Parsha break, after Jacob's death. That's an interesting suggestion. Really, if it's Jacob's death that brings on, it's after Jacob's death that you have slavery, then you would expect that the blockage would occur at the end of this Parsha, actually between the entire book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. That would be actually quite powerful that you would have a block marking what, as we know, will be the beginning of a depressing story, the end of a rather uplifting story in the beginning of a depressing story. So why does it come beforehand, she says. Rashi's second answer, she says, comes as a partial response. It moves into Jacob's own consciousness. It is he who is blocked in his desire to reveal the end. Jacob wanted to reveal the end, right? The last days, the cates. This is the moment when Jacob calls his children around his deathbed and proclaims his intent to speak to them of the last things. Remember that verse again, what will happen to them at the end of days, the last things. But what follows is a description of each son with no eschatological reference, no reference to the end of times. This discontinuity between Jacob's preamble that I'm gonna to reveal to you the the last things and the content of his final speech, which doesn't have anything to do with the last things, generates a Midrashic narrative. Rashi here quotes the Midrash again. He sought to reveal the end and the presence of God departed from him and he began to say other things. So she then turns as she likes to turn to the more Kabbalistic commentator, the Sfat Emet, Sfas Emes, as I've heard it pronounced by my rabbi all the time. Um, a wonderful suggestion in him, in his writings, that to reveal the end, it's not to tell you the details about the end, actually, even though it says reveal the end, it's simply to communicate the idea of ultimate harmony. We hope at least the, a, a godly end to the universe, a godly end to, to our lives on earth would be one of harmony. So revealing the end is simply giving over, Jacob's giving over to his children the idea that actually it's gonna be okay. You're gonna come to ultimate harmony. It is to convince Jacob's children on the verge of exile and diffusion, about to lose all sense of autonomy, of the intelligibility of their destiny, that their experience really does have a cates, an implicit order, cates, an end, a complicit order, movement toward meaning. But if Jacob had succeeded in conveying to his children a strong unequivocal vision of the end, in the sense of harmony, the experience of exile would have been robbed of its necessary sting. It was important they had to go through the suffering in Egypt. That experience knows of no easy res resolution. Jacob's children will have to live its absurdity and its pain, beautifully put as often with Aviva Zornberg, its apparently fruitless yearnings without intoxicating visions of harmony to sustain them. That's a nice explanation of why Jacob might have been closed up. But the same question arises. In that case, the stuma should not come before he even talks. It should come after he talks, after he gives the blessing that's closed up. So I take the, this uh, sort of argument of Aviva Zornberg's, which I agree with, that these explanations of Rashi's don't really work very well, that really the stuma should belong should, uh, should happen afterwards, if he's right, as a cue to ask, what if 
the stuma refers to something that happens before the beginning of our Parsha rather than afterwards. And here's my suggestion. Now we get to sort of the heart of what I want to, uh, want to argue here. What happens just before Vayachi Yaakov? Verse 28 in chapter 47. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Oh, wait, did I uh, not share it? Sorry, let me share the, um, the verses from Genesis. Okay, so our Pasha begins here. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 140 and seven years, etc. And then we go on from there. And it's blocked up between 27 and 28. Now, if we look back before 28, just a few lines for something that might, might be disturbing enough that we would want to see a, a blockage, a hint of blindness. Remember, Jacob is also somewhat blind in this Parsha and the, the blockage of the Parsha itself may go with Jacob's own blindness. Well, we just have to look a few verses before and we see Jacob, Joseph, sorry, Jacob's son, the great powerful ruler, buying the people of Egypt. Behold, I've bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh. And you're going to give this and that. This is how you, he's, Jacob, Joseph, sorry, has just enslaved the Egyptians. And what do they say? Ah, sorry. It's still not much of a, um, let's see. Nope. There we go. Sorry, still not great with the technology. All right, what do they say when they've been bought? They say, verse 25, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor, grace in the eyes of our Lord. And then look at this. And we'll be slaves to Pharaoh. Does that sound at all familiar? Should sound familiar, should sound like the beginning of our Passover Haggadahs, famously. What do we say when we're after the four questions? Avadim hayinu lefar, we were slaves to Egypt. And in fact, it's not just in the Passover Haggadahs, in case um, you've forgotten the context of the story in, uh, in the Chumash itself, in the Torah itself. Here we have the two verses. The Egyptians say, and then in the book of Deuteronomy, this is actually where we get it from, from of course, in the Haggadah, uh, we get the famous verse, what your son will say in the future, what are, what's the meaning of these testimonies, these statutes, etc. The Amata Lavincha, and you'll say to your son, Avadim Hayinu Lefar. We were slaves to Pharaoh. Doesn't that suggest? that we set up the conditions of our own slavery, that Joseph's enslaving the Egyptians made it possible, as surely it did socioeconomically and politically, for the Egyptians to turn around and to enslave the Jews as well. Here Joseph is right next to Pharaoh in power. He's done wonderful things, saving people from famine, but the culmination, the end of his active life, the last thing we're told about in his, in his political life is that he enslaves the entire Egyptian people. And then what happens shortly after that? We are enslaved. 
I'd like to suggest that this is a hidden wrong that we committed and then we forget. We are blind to it. There's a stuma, a blockage that prevents us, including our commentators, from seeing what in some ways is kind of obvious, that the Torah itself is telling us, you know, when you get too close to power and you use it to enslave other people, it's gonna come around and bite you as well. I don't, I haven't seen anybody else say this, and I don't wanna say it's absolutely clear that this is the right reading of the Parshiot, but I do think it opens up an avenue in the Torah for some very powerful thoughts that we might wanna reflect on today. Um, Joseph is the model of the court Jew, the powerful Jew. Judah is the model of the Jew who is standing up for principles. It takes him a while to get around to that, but and in fact, we are named for Judah, not for Joseph. Um, the Jew who, well, he's the father of the, of the Jewish tribe that will eventually give the name to all Jews who go into exile or remain in exile for 2000 years. He's not a person with power. Um, at crucial moments, he stands up for what's right. Um, he does some other things before that, but eventually, importantly, both in the incident with Tamar and then uh, especially in, in dealing with Joseph himself, he's the person who, as it were, speaks, first of all, recognizes justice, does justice, but then secondly, speaks truth to power. Joseph is the power to whom truth is spoken. Jews have always needed these, both of these models. I don't wanna dismiss Joseph. He is of course presented in rabbinic literature as Joseph Hatzadik, the saint, very, very uh, supposed to be a wonderful human being. And there are a lot of things that both in the text itself and in Midrash that, that can be said that are good about him. But he is certainly the power who, he is a Jew who represents He's a representative of the kind of Jew who gets into the circles of power, helps his fellow Jews as a result, helps the rest of his family, but also does whatever is needed to maintain the powers that be. In the book of Genesis, Pharaoh is a good guy, the Pharaoh, the, this particular Pharaoh. Seems pretty nice. He does good things for his people and for, for, the, uh, for the Jews, for the, for the family of Jacob. In the book of Exodus, immediately afterwards, the next Pharaoh is not such a good guy. This is something that is a type also of a kind of experience that has recurred throughout our history. We get into power, we become close to the czar, the, um, the vizier, the, the rulers of the local area. Um, we do things that they need done that sometimes other people won't do, collecting taxes, um, some unpopular things sometimes. Um, and then lo and behold, the people turn against us and we become the face of the enemy. We become the scapegoat. We become the people who all the, all the faults of the ruling power then are blamed on us. And we get all upset and we say, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, and yes, it is in part, we're all being blamed for things that very few of us have done. And in fact, that are being guided by, led by others but we do have agency and we do have some responsibility, but very often there's a stuma, a blockage over the degree to which we are complicit, involved, responsible for the injustices that in part claim us. 
I don't want to, I, I think this is true in many contexts. Um, there's certain kind of, I, and, and I, also I, I, I should say that I don't mean to say that the court Jew is always a bad thing. The court Jew protects the Jews who are not court Jews in many cases. The czarist Jews helped make life under the czar easier. The Jews who are involved in the circles of American power, sometimes pleasantly, sometimes not so pleasantly, among other things, sometimes they do good things for the people of the country, and sometimes they do good things to protect other Jews. But there is always a danger, a moral danger, in becoming involved in those circles. A danger that we will just go along to help the powers that be maintain their own power at the cost of oppressing other people, at the cost in our Parsha of helping to create the system of slavery, which eventually enslaves us at the cost of, of, of establishing systems of discrimination, which sometimes affect us as well, but then we shouldn't completely wipe our hands of them. At the cost of defending American slavery, which many Jews did. Some Jews stood up against it, but other Jews defended it. I have in mind, I should say most explicitly, the degree to which in Quite, honor, quite legitimately trying to protect our own in establishing the state of Israel. I don't think there was anything wrong in trying to seek a state where we would have refuge, where we could develop our culture and our religion. We at the same time, first of all, played the court Jew game all over again, played, uh, uh, acted very much as agents of the British empire originally, have acted since, as aids to American power in sometimes dangerous ways, but also quite explicitly set up systems of second-class citizenship, which we increasingly are entrenching and which have, uh, uh, for Palestinians, which, which have had terrible effects often for us, both in the sense of breeding violence, but also in the sense of breeding systems of oppression that affect Jews as well. What we're seeing right now, the government that has just come into Israel, uh, includes in very powerful positions, people who not only want to oppress Palestinians and are very open about that, but also non-Orthodox Jews, LGBTQ Jews, etc. cetera. Um, I think those of us who have in the past felt that we needed to stand by Israel at whatever the cost, and to some extent or other, I have always, I've always been a Zionist. I've certainly never turned against Zionism. I don't want to do that even now. I think we have to recognize nevertheless the degree to which we may bear responsibility for the evils that come in the wake of that. And the degree to which there's a blockage, a hiddenness that prevents us from seeing that. Now here, I do want to add one more thing about the Parsha and then turn to a few notes from, um, from Rabbi Soloveitchik. Uh, in order to think more about the degree to which we can be individually caught up in wrongs of our community. Um, let me just say before I go on, by the way, I'm using Aviva Zornberg and Rabbi Soloveitchik as sources for the ideas that I want to develop here and have us think about, but I don't think either of them would share my politics. I, I have no reason to think they would. Um, so I'm not saying that they necessarily would draw the same conclusions that I would. And in fact, that will be quite important, especially when we come to uh, Soloveitchik. But 
before we do that, let's just turn back to the verse that we were looking at from our Parsha, in which the Egyptians respond to their own slavery. They said, you've saved our lives. Let us find favor in your in uh, in our Lord's eyes. And then they say, and we'll be slaves to Pharaoh. They are grateful. They are thankful. Joseph has reason to think he's doing a good thing in enslaving the Egyptians. Because after all, it comes by way of his also providing them with food, providing them with a, with a ready source of, <coughs> of uh, famine relief. Um, it, he might not see that at the, even while um, helping them, he is also oppressing them. He may not see that he's setting up a system of oppression. Or maybe he does. We're not told anything about Joseph's motives. Maybe he, he, he is enough of a, uh, a viceroy and uh, agent of the Pharaoh that he's explicitly thinking, aha, here I can help the Egyptian people while at the same time enslaving them to increase Pharaoh's power. Um, who knows? He may, but in any case, he doesn't have to see that this is the bad thing. He is, what he does is actually welcomed as a good thing. And this isn't exactly parallel by any means because the setting up of the state of Israel was not welcomed by the Palestinians for one thing, but it's easy to see how those who originally were enthusiastic about the Zionist project as I certainly was for much of my life, even long after the state of Israel, and one after it, right, of course, um, didn't see that it had a negative side. Didn't see, they could see the good things they were doing for their people. They may even have seen, and Herzl explicitly did, they may even have thought, Herzl explicitly did, that they were actually going to help the Arabs as well. They're going to bring economic goods. And many, many people have said, quite far on the right in the Zionist spectrum, oh, we're actually helping the Arab people by bringing them economic opportunities. So like Joseph, they might have thought, and I do think it's most likely that Joseph thought he was doing a good thing. I'm helping these people. Who cares if I'm also enslaving them? Who cares if I'm also oppressing them? That doesn't matter. And in that sense, the goodness of what they're doing, that itself serves as a blockage that blinds them to the harm they're also doing. And I think this is very common that we do things politically that we think are unequivocally good. I think this is perhaps most common in politics that we, we join movements that we think are unequivocally good and we just blind ourselves to the harm that they also create. And then this is true on both left and right. I don't mean this to be, a, uh, to be a, a, something that applies simply to the right. All right, let's turn to Soloveitchik. There isn't as much explicitly in Soloveitchik as I wanted, but I think there are some ideas here that are very interesting that we can make use of. This, this is- Sorry, Professor, can I jump in yes. with a quick question really quick? Yes, please. So from the, uh, you know, from the perspective of ethics, um, how do we think about creating wrongs, doing, doing wrongs um, when we view there's a greater good? Um, I mean, I mean, the, the idea of, I mean, I can understand somebody holding back from doing something that's, that's generative and positive um, because, of, because of, of the cost. 
Um, but then you've also created a harm, you know, in not in not doing that positive thing. So I wonder if you could just help us think about that, you know, from the realm of theory for a moment. So I'm just going to say something brief about that uh, because I think it will come up in in uh, what 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 we say in, in what follows. But let me just distinguish between two things. There's the case in which, and this is the standard ethics class kind of thing. You know, you got to kill the innocent guy in order to prevent a uh, a mob uprising in which. 5,000 people will be killed or something, uh, 500 people, whatever. And frankly, I'm not a utilitarian. I dislike these scenarios. I, 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 uh, but, but I would say, you know, if you're really pretty sure that if you don't frame the innocent person, kill the innocent person, uh, you're going to have hundreds of more deaths, then I'd say go for it. And that sounds very cruel, but you know, I think we do that all the time. We do in many, and it's a matter of trying to minimize death. We build bridges knowing that somebody's likely to die in the process of building a bridge because it will save many lives later, later on. But in those cases, we know there's a harm. We can see the harm. And we think we've made a calculation, which sometimes we certainly should not make. I think most of the time we probably shouldn't make because you actually don't know these things. But in context of war and build, bridge building, maybe there are cases where you have to say, you know, I can save some people, I can save other people, I have to minimize the harm done. And I, I know there's something terrible about killing an innocent person or letting an innocent person die, but I have to go for that. The cases I'm talking about cases are cases in which you don't see or only barely see that you're doing harm at all. And that I find more interesting. It doesn't come up in the ethics uh, literature, unless, except under the heading of self-deception, which is something I'm very interested in, because it's not, a, not something you decide about. You don't decide, I'm going to close my mind to this, right? If you were aware enough that you were likely to do a harm, that you're doing something that could be really wrong, you might at least think about it and come to the explicit decision one way or the other, whether this is worth doing or not. I mean, I'm thinking also about, you know, uh, early communists in the early 20th century who could see that there was something about the totalitarian structure of the Soviet Union that could be really problematic, but they were thinking, hey, it's all right, it's gonna be okay, we'll get past that. Um, I think there are all kinds of programs that the US has put into place where in which the what was wrong, the harm was was not seen, not quite seen. Um, and, and I think indeed a great deal of racist police harms initially were put into place because people said, well, you stop more people on the street or you do this or that kind of policing, you'll actually protect more people. It'll be a good thing. It'll be a good thing for blacks and whites alike. And they close their eyes to the real injustice of what they're doing. And that's what I think is going on in the Joseph case. And that's also what I think was going on in the case of the state of Israel, the setting up of the state of Israel. Um, it's not that um, it's not that Ben-Gurion 
or any of the people who work with him were explicitly thinking, well, you know, we're going to have to expel so-and-so many Arabs, we're gonna make more happy. And they didn't do a calculation like that. They didn't think, Ben-Gurion, I think, really didn't think that he was going to create a state that was going to be oppressive to the Arab population. I, I know he gets a lot of flack, um, but, I, but I, I do think that's a correct reading, at least of his initial intentions. That's why he didn't want to take over the West Bank, why he condemned it again in 67. Um, was he fooling himself? Absolutely. Were many of us fooling themselves and go, going along with this? Absolutely. But that's not the same as making an explicit calculation. I'm concerned, that's why this is entitled Hidden Wrongs. I'm concerned with the wrongs that we, we may not even know about, um, and, or at least we only half see or, or, or dimly perceive. Now, I, I'm not, and I actually want to get to talking about that, so you can raise your question again when we come back to it. But, um, and, and I don't know that Soloveitchik is the best person with whom to think about this, but he does have some thoughts that I think are useful. First of all, this is wonderful distinction in the middle of his On Repentance. I'm not going to read this whole long section here. There's a section of it uh, from a single uh, lecture, I think, called The Individual and the Community, in which he talks about two kinds of acquittal on Yom Kippur. There's one for individual sins, and for that you have to repent. There's another for Knesset Israel, the community of Jews as a whole, community of Israel, uh, construed as the Jewish people, in its entirety and as a separate mystical kind of self, as he calls it here. And the Seir HaMishtaleach, the scapegoat that is sent out, is an acquittal for the community as a whole, not for individuals. Um, and that kind of acquittal, he says, um, you don't actually individually have to repent for. He talk, takes into account other opinions that think you do, but he argues it's not actually something you have to repent for. And here's the important line here. Individuals derive benefit from it, this acquittal, the acquittal of the community, via the pipelines of the community. I like that phrase very much, pipelines of the community. I like thinking of all our different kinds of communal connections as pipelines by which we can pass on both learning and various virtues and ignorance and various vices. So that means the way we talk to one another, it means our school system, it means our adult ed program, uh, programs like the many that, uh, that you run, um, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shmuley, <laughs> I may call you that. Um, it means our NGOs, it means our federations, it means our charities, it means our synagogues, of course. Uh, it means also the informal ways that we talk with one another. And what I like about this suggestion here is that those pipelines both bring us together and create our community and can get, as it were, blocked up, can get filled with muck, as it were, and need expiation. That's to say, what the Rav is telling us here is that we need a scapegoat for the community. We need to purify the community at least once a year. And here I think we might think about what is each of us doing to help unclog the pipelines of our community? I think that's at least a very useful metaphor for thinking about how to deal with injustice that has seeped through the community.
Now, the Rav adds something else, which is he, what he's more concerned with, but, and I think it's an important point. It's not the main thing I wanted to stress, but I think it's really uh, worth, worth noting. At the end of the second paragraph I have here, he says, and in order to partake of communal acquittal, he says, the, to, to partake of both kinds of committal, the, the, the individual has to do two things. First of all, the individual has to repent and do spiritual stock taking to take care of his or her own sins. I have to repent to deal with my own sins. But then in order to partake of the communal acquittal, I have to be bound to the community. I don't do the repenting myself, the community has to repent, but I have to be bound to it. And then he asks, how does one qualify as a member of the community? And he says, it seems to me that in order to achieve this level of belonging and integration with Knesset Israel, with the Jewish community as a whole, one must above all have faith in what it stands for. And he goes on looking at a dispute about whether the Mashiach will come whether Israel repents or not, or whether it will come only if Israel repents. And he takes the side of the Rambam, who, at least according to the Rav, thinks that we can have faith that Israel will repent. That is, it does require, the Mashiach will not come without repentance, unless the body of Israel, the Knesset Israel, Jews as a whole, repent for our sins. So if we don't repent, there'll be no Mashiach. But to have faith in the Mashiach, is to have faith that our community will eventually repent. And that from this, the Rav draws this very striking claim. It emerges from this that faith in the coming of the Messiah is dependent on our faith in Knesset Israel. We have to have, we're supposed to have faith in the coming of the Messiah. We can't have it unless we also have faith in the Jewish community. And he goes on to say explicitly, this is not an easy faith, and he talks about what he's worried about in the Jewish community, which frankly is that people are not orthodox enough. He, uh, he, this, is what, this is his big concern, that the orthodox part of the Jewish community is so small. So I, I, honestly, I worry sometimes about the disappearance of halacha in our community, the disappearance of halachic Judaism, of commitment to especially Shabbat. But it's not my main concern, certainly not my main concern today. I worry about whether the Jewish community is going down a path, especially right now, of irredeemable apartheid and or fascism, and is going to unite around that and never repent. And what I take away from the Rav is that I have to have faith that that won't happen. Part of my commitment to the Jewish community is faith, faith in God, really, not in everybody around me necessarily. It, it's not an easy faith, as he says. But I have faith, insofar as I have faith in Judaism at all, I have faith that the Jewish community can turn itself around. And I want to say, I think this is actually valuable even on a secular level. If you really want to change your community, you have to have faith in it. I think that's something worth holding on to. You want to change the, what you see as injustice in your community. You have to have faith that your community can change. So I think this is a very powerful notion of what belonging to a community means. It means having faith that in, at bottom, it's okay. It can be good. It can achieve some kind of harmony. One other idea from the rub, and then I'll stop. Earlier in... Um, on repentance, on a tshuva, which is, in my opinion, the greatest book by Rabbi Soloveitchik, 
Um, and in a section that doesn't have to do with individual and community, he's talk, he does talk a bit about self-deception. And he has this wonderful sort of poetic passage in which he's citing a passage in 1 Samuel in which Abigail comes to her husband Nabal, who is having a merry feast, and he's very drunk. And wherefore she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. And then in the morning when the wine goes out of him, he realizes he's actually going to be killed. He's in disaster. And the Rav draws from this that sin overtakes us when we're indulging in a night of iniquity, mist and fog conceal. This is like the blockage again, right? Mist and fog conceal the inner light of the soul of a man who is immersed in the blinding, obsessive night of his passions and is plunged within the oblivion of his lust. At the very hour when Nabal's heart was merry within him, he was in such a state of intoxication that he did not notice the flashing blade of the sword hanging over his very door. Therefore, Abigail says nothing less or more. And he, Rabbi Soloveitchik, compares this the way rabbis feel when they look at their congregants and they feel like they're in the midst of a drinking party, they feel that their moralizing will fall on an impenetrable surface. The people they address are drunk with the pursuit of luxuries, trying to imitate foreign lifestyles and currying favor with their neighbors. There's simply no one with whom to talk. And at this stage, the rabbi tells nothing more or less or more. He's a concern again about Jews being drawn away from Judaism and assimilating. That's the big sin he's concerned with. He uses the metaphor of lust. He isn't explicitly concerned with lust and, and drunkenness. Um, that's what fills up Nabal. Uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik is concerned with the lust and drunkenness for being American as opposed to being Jewish, for assimilating into the American community and forgetting our Jewishness. And he feels that that's happening so widely that at many times he feels he can tell nothing less or more. He has nobody he can talk to. I wanna say, sometimes I feel like we, the Jewish community today, are filled with lust and drunkenness for power, for being only the Joseph Jew, for using power, for solving all our problems with power, and if we are drunk with it, there's no one to talk to. And one can say nothing less or more. I know rabbis, I have close friends who are rabbis who feel they cannot talk to their communities about the Palestinian issue. Not at all, they can't raise it. And I, I think it's helpful to bear in mind what Soloveitchik says here, there are occasions in which you can't talk about these things, but eventually the wine goes out of us and then there comes morning light and then we can talk. And the faith I think we need to have is eventually our community will become such that we can talk about the injustices that we need to deal with. I'm gonna stop there. Thank you so much. Okay, I see we have a first hand up here. Hi, Aglaia. Hi. Okay. So I'm going to sound really odd for a minute though, but that's okay. They're used to it. Um, <laughs> to be short though, when I was, um, okay, earth science class in eighth grade, I was bored and I started thinking about, okay, so how can I turn like, you know, 
was it earth science? Yeah. Okay. How can I turn Newton into something that I'm actually interested in right now? So I'm taking Newton's third law. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I'm basically trying to like get this. Okay. So is this a law of karma? Is this, a, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, years later, I end up bringing in also like, you know, quantum theory and differential equations. And then I just base a completely like different topic on using these ideas. So really honestly though, what I'm getting at though is that we have, okay, so I know what um, Soloveitchik um, wants by way of, okay, this is, and I have my own idea about how do we um, get to the actual, like the, I guess, um, the really like the real seriously underlying problem that we have to negate in order to deal with everything, get everything else out of the way. Now, if that, if I makes sense, how do we actually put to the, um, we are behaving, our decisions are made on certain assumptions, certain ideas, certain self-deceptions. How do we actually get to that and bring the antithesis of those self-deceptions to destroy those self-deceptions in a way that like say matter and antimatter end up meeting up and they destroy each other or the equal and opposite reaction. If any of this is like not sounding like it's halfway sane. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pick the part I, I, I follow, which is how do we deal with self-deception? How do we find it? Um, <laughs> the rest is very interesting and, and powerful, but I'm going to take that as a metaphor for that central question. Um, that's really hard because obviously if I'm deceiving myself, then I'm going to deceive myself about my deceiving myself. And, you know, I just gave you a talk from a fairly strongly left-wing perspective about Israel. I think we're committing a gross injustice there. I think the way we treat the Palestinians on the West Bank is the greatest collective crime we've committed in 2000 years. Um, but maybe I'm deceiving myself. Left-wingers do it too. <laughs> I mentioned communists, right? Um, and maybe I just want to look good. And uh, this keeps me in well with the crowd I like to move with. Then I'm not seeing that about myself, right? So it can look like there's just no solution whatsoever. If I'm deceiving myself, I can't even see what I need to deal with. So I'll just, and, and I think what the first step as with drunkenness and, and, and other kinds of addictions, is to recognize you have a problem, right? Is to recognize that you are subject to self-deception, especially to pick it up if other people notice it. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean they're always right, but just recognizing that they might be right is very important. The second step, which I already indicated, is to listen to other people. Everybody needs an Abigail. <laughs> you don't see it yourself. You need somebody to come to you. Um, we need to talk about these things on, uh, these, on the collective level with these issues. I think Jews who are committed to Knesset Israel, to the, to the goodness of the community of Jews as a whole, need to talk with one another about the injustices that we may also be committing. The third tip I would give, and, and, it's, uh, and, and this isn't enough by any means, um, is we should recognize that good intentions can often disguise bad realities. Um, that often when we are doing something wrong, it's not because we mean to be doing it, or at least we haven't thought through exactly what we're doing. I know you want to come back. 
That's okay. Uh, I'm listening to you, actually. I was just thinking that you reminded me of one of the meanest things I ever did to a student. This young man, he was talking about slave owners, and I just said, how are you different from a slave owner? And when you were talking about it, I was like, oh my God, it brings back that discussion, because he said, well, I'm not a racist. And then I said, Dan, well, are there any people that you think of are fundamentally different from you because of their culture, their religion, their politics. And they said, yeah, of course. And I said, then that's not it. Try again. And they said, well, I have good intentions. I was like, slave owners said that too. (laughs) So I'm stressing this guy out completely. And I said, finally, I just said, well, you're having this discussion with me. So maybe that's a good place to start. Are you willing to admit how that you are 100%, you know, like, like vulnerable to being wrong, basically. So I don't know. Anyway, though, when you were saying what you were talking about, though, just took me right back okay (laughs) (laughs) i look i think being taken back to disturbing moments is also helpful of course look things like psychoanalysis can be helpful i think psychoanalysis is often not focused enough on ethical issues it can actually be a, a way of indulging too much in and i've been in and in, 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 in therapy, I've been in analysis and so forth. But um, I, I don't want to say it's a it's a solution to everything. Uh, some okay. can be too they, it, they can be too much um, navel gazing in psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, but certainly, sort of trying to look deeply into what your real motivations are by way of analysis or or something else, I think that can be part of the pro, uh, of the solution. Um, sociologically, you know, I think the analogy between a collective group and an individual agent, as you have in the soul of aging, is an powerful and important one, has a long history in, in philosophy, but one doesn't want to go too far. You can't actually put the whole community on the couch, right? But you can have members within it talking to each other. Sometimes, I guess this is the one other thing, when you find yourself getting very shocked or angry, that's probably a clue that there's something there to work on. You might be angry because somebody has wrongly accused you. They might really have wrongly accused you, but if you're getting really upset, there's probably something that you yourself know you need to work on. Solid. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam. Um, I, I definitely remember you and I, I enjoyed our conversations. Uh, and, and this is such a, such a great conversation we're having here something that's coming up to me and that I'm really resonating with um, and, and I'm starting to think about is the the ideology of uh, most Americans that I see in the progressive world that I mainly deal with, uh, they really want to get to um, check box, uh, two boxes, either it's right or it's wrong. Um, and, and that stops the idea of having thorough conversation. And the, the greatest example that you're using is the example of um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, I, I I see that for oftentimes um, um, Americans in the progressive field where I'm, and, and I also have friends who are are, are more right-leaning and, and, and such, oftentimes will completely shut down because there is no concept of um, there's gray area. And folks need to have these conversations. So it's something that I loved with what you said, we have to listen to each other. And I oftentimes, I only see that in, in both sides of the extremes, oftentimes we're in echo chambers. One of my closest friends, um, I would, if, if my uh, progressive friends learned about him, they would have been like, Eddie, you should be canceled because he used to be a far right Republican. 
right? Um, so my question to you is, how do we cancel that canceling <laughs> of people that no matter what it is, obviously there's a moral high ground, right? Where you're like, there's a no-go on killing people. Like that's that's totally no-go. But how do we have the steps to take to be able to have these conscious conversations with people that opens them up to listening to us? Because at this point, I think that especially here, and the conversations we're having in the progressive sphere in America, we're trying to put such such an American um, point of view in otherworldly problems that just doesn't exist. And it leaves off the, the uncomfortableness of gray area. And I think that oftentimes we just don't like to have that gray area in there, but it's real and it's raw. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, not only as regards Israel-Palestine, but many other issues that we deal with, um, abortion, um, affirmative action, all kinds of issues, uh, they, they can be quite complex. And we have a tendency, I, I do think canceling has been a huge mistake on the progressive side. Uh, you don't have to have absolutely everybody come talk. And I think students often go for the person who will bring the biggest crowd, which is often the most obnoxious, most offensive, most hate-filled speaker, because they're exciting. And I don't think there's any reason to bring those kinds of speakers. Um, on the other hand, there's a very good reason not to close out of, especially communities like this one, which are meant to be discussion circles, uh, people who have views that we strongly disagree with. If they're honest about it and they're trying to represent it honestly, they're not trying to shut people up, they really wanna express it, uh, I, you gotta let that come out. You gotta talk about it. In fact, there's a, no um, way of dealing with it otherwise. Um, I ended my book on empathy with a chapter on demonization, arguing that we actually shouldn't treat as a demon, demonize anyone, even, even Nazis. Um, not because we like Nazis, they're horrible, <laughs> but because if you wanna prevent people from becoming Nazis, if you want to even have a chance of talking some people leaning that way out of it, you need to approach them empathetically, at least if they allow that. I do by any means mean that we should put ourselves in danger. Um, but yes, the whole, I mean, Zionism and its critics issue is extremely complicated. It requires knowing a great deal of history. It's a very messy history uh, on both sides, honestly. And first of all, one could get to know the history better before engaging in the conversation, which I find often doesn't happen. And secondly, instead of canceling people, uh, almost exactly the opposite, engaging with them. I mean, these days, I have no idea what really should happen in Israel, Palestine, but the groups I most support are groups that bring Jews and Palestinians together. Um, uh, things like Roots, like the Givat Khabiba uh, International School, like the wonderful Arab Jewish um, political movement standing together, Omdin Biyachad, which works on all sorts of wonderful causes, but always with Jews and Arabs working together. I think that is super important. And they get criticized on the one hand, quite often from people on the right, because most of these groups lean left and are anti-occupation, almost all of these groups are, and sometimes quite harsh, sharply so, but they get criticized also from the, I'm gonna call it so-called left for normalization. The anti-normalization movement has, is basically the Palestinian equivalent of a cancel movement. And I think that's also a disaster. Um, you don't want fewer Palestinians and Jews talking together. You want more of them talking together. And that's the only way to eventually 
build a political constituency that can figure out what way they might have out of this mess, what kinds of mutually agreeable solutions there might be to the injustices that, um, that seem to be perpetuated. I do want to just want to make sure we remember the starting point here because I still find even the visual impact of that stuma so powerful. This is the one place in the Parsha which you can't even find your place. And the idea that maybe that's because we just committed a great sin without noticing it. I think that's just a wonderful thought. And, and actually, if if I'm the only person ever to suggest this, I, I, I mean, I may be wrong, but then that would mean that God put that in there as it were thousands of years ago and it's only now coming to light. But I think that's how Torah works. There are all kinds of gems in it whose true value doesn't come out for generations. Okay, can anyway. I just ask, oh, yeah. sorry. Yes, go ahead. I no, no. don't mean to interrupt you, okay? Uh, but I'm yeah. bouncing off the walls. Anyway, <laughs> here's my question about that, though. Like, I'm thinking, you know, in terms of, okay, so there's no beginning and there's no end and everything. All right. Long story short, okay? When it comes to, okay, did you, like, you know, work with the czar? Did you work with, you know, who knows what power structure, whatever? Okay. The, the British Empire, for instance. The British Empire why not call out the British Empire for setting this up this way in the first place? Why blame it only on Jewish people? Blame the power structure, blame the czar, blame, you know, like seriously. But everybody doesn't like, just kind of like the czar gets off the hook. That's so ridiculous to me. It's just like so ridiculous. So the British Empire, it's like, I don't hear nearly as many people like complaining about the British Empire as they do, you know, whatever, like, you know, all the lit- litany of things, issues that they have with Israel and whatever. So here's the thing, though, is that what good, I mean, would it do us any good to, like, call the British Empire out for setting it up this way in the first place? Well, I think the British Empire has a lot of responsibility for the disaster in Israel-Palestine. Um, and I think that should be included in any thoughtful history. Obviously, one reason we don't talk about it so much now is it's not here anymore. That Britain's here, but the empire's gone a long time ago. But <laughs> I also think we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook too easily there. Herzl appealed to the Kaiser, the Sultan, as well as, I mean, he didn't even think about the British Empire, it took Weizmann to do that later on. He was appearing to empires all over to ask them, can you let us have a piece of land? It didn't even have to be... Uh, Palestine uh, for him, but then more and more did have to be Palestine, um, that we can make our home in. He wasn't thinking in terms of what if we talk to the people who actually live there? Why? Because at the time people thought in terms of empires. It was an imperial system. You worked through the empires. Today we work through states and through the United Nations. and so in a sense, you can let him off the hook. I think actually the accusation, oh, it's a, it was a Zionism was a settler colonialist movement. Well, there's some truth to it, but one response is, so what? So was every attempt to build a nation at the time, that may be exaggerating, but to a large extent, there's a colonialist, imperialist aspect to all nation building projects at the time. They're all appealing to empires to help them because that's how you work. But that doesn't let us off the hook. Well, can we actually negate that? 
can we negate that? Because there are a lot of assumptions that we have now about this is what nations are. So this is how you build nations. This is how, do we have to actually just restructure our complete, like our thinking about, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm just out of my mind right now. But anyway, the, but can we actually ever get to a point where we completely restructure how we think about, well, what actually constitutes a nation? How should you build a nation? You know, we've got some antiquated ideas here that have to go. <laughs> okay, sorry, but anyway. <laughs> so I would say that's probably part of thinking about whether we, what our system of states, of yeah. nation states and rethinking it is one of the things, not just the Jews, but the world, world community needs to work on. But as progressives, I think one of the things we need to recognize always is you may want to change the whole system, but you also have to work now. If you're going to wait till the whole system's changed, that's a good way of doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, we have to work within the system just as everybody else, including the people we criticize, <laughs> had to work within their system, including Joseph, <laughs> vice to the pharaoh. So in some sense, we are fated to be in the midst of power structures that are in many ways evil or potentially evil. Right. And we both have to change them and have to work within them as well as we can. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Professor, for this fascinating talk rooted in Torah and really gives us a lot to think about. And what just one final point I wanna highlight before we jump off here is, you know, sometimes the, the, the loudest, most fervent, most absolute activists are the ones um, who, get, who, who get the most attention, who get heard. And in fact, um, what the project of Ariel Tzedek here, and I think what we're, we're, we're being pushed today as well, is to think not only about the injustices out there uh, with great nuance and intellectual rigor, but also to think about our own complicity and the own hidden injustices involved in what we're doing and to, to still fervently advocate and work for change, even when the, the you know, things become a lot more gray. Um, things become a lot more gray and making any leadership decision might mean there's going to be some pain involved as well. And, um, and yet still being uh, willing to not step away uh, as a skeptic, but uh, continue to engage deeply given the complexity. I, I could, that couldn't, you, I couldn't have come up with a better ending than that, Rabbi Shmuley. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining us wherever you are in the world right now where you're listening. And blessings to everyone in 2023. And maybe we continue to come together to learn Torah and to translate that learning into action to combat injustices near and far. God bless. Thank you so much.